Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Writers are notoriously difficult to turn into the subject of a movie. They may create some of the most extraordinary images imaginable, but to the outside observer, they're mostly sitting at a desk trying to think. So few have exciting lives, though that's hardly the case with the famous war poets of World War One. Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, their lives were almost too exciting. In the face of such slaughter, one cannot simply order one's conscience. Good morning, Doctor. We have a house magazine. I'm sure it would welcome a contribution. And I'll try to write something light and amusing. There's no need to go that far. Writers are notoriously difficult to turn into the subject of a movie. They may create some of the most extraordinary images imaginable, but to the outside observer, they're mostly sitting at a desk trying to think. So few have exciting lives, though that's hardly the case with the famous war poets of World War I. Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, their lives were almost too exciting. Sassoon, surely one of the very few leading poets to earn a military cross for gallantry, is now the subject of a new film by distinguished British filmmaker Terence Davis. It's called Benediction, and I'm joined by Terence Davis on the phone from Britain. Thanks so much indeed for sparing the time. Thank Thank you for inviting me. The war poets were hugely popular at the time in Britain, weren't they? Um, yes, but the real reputation began after, after the war, because, of course, Rupert Brooke and Wilfred Owen were killed. Um, Siegfried wasn't. And I think that, A, not only affected him uh, as a human being, but I think there was always that thing that he wasn't quite up to uh, their standard. And I think he is. I think he's a great, a, a great poet. But what do you do when you've survived that war? I mean, it was just unimaginable. Mm. You know, uh, how do you carry on? And thank goodness he did carry on and write. And also that, that down to Robbie Ross when he said that he would not obey military orders. I mean, he was wanted to be court-martialed. And because Robert Ross knew everybody, he got him uh, to send to Craig Lockhart, which was, a, which was a, a hospital for shell shock. Robbie Ross was Oscar Wilde's publisher and friend, wasn't he? Yes, he was, and he really stood by him. He stood by people that he believed in. That's what he did. A lovely man. A, 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 a lovely man, clearly. And played delightfully by Simon Russell Beale in the film, I thought. He's lovely. He's just perfect. Like all people who've got great talent, you just say one or two things and they do it, and you think, blimey, how do they do it so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> the average take on the, on the film, in fact, was um, four. Oh, is that right? Goodness gracious. But in fact, the talent in the film is extraordinary. Some of them I had to look up. A lot of them are better known for their um, theatre work than they are for their TV or film work, but they're all incredibly distinguished. How hard was it casting such, I was going to say a period piece, because it's the 20s a lot of the time, and the 20s, it doesn't exist anymore. Those types and those voices and those faces are no longer around. No, they aren't. But it was a, a, between the wars. You know, it was very you know brittle and sophisticated. If you were luck, lucky and had money, if it were, you went back to a you know a factory or a mine, mm. and they were very very privileged indeed. Um, but all you could say when you send 
a script so we know would you let me quickly and a lot of them did self-tapes which are very helpful for them and for me and you know i was so in a way so overwhelmed peter capaldi um anton lesser um Gemma jones these are very distinguished people and they were small roles and they said we want to do it which is you know so kind it's so kind and all of them just it's a joy to watch people not only interpret the text as you had heard it, um, but bringing something new to it. And that makes the text really alive. At the start of this, I mentioned how difficult it is to turn a writer into a, a biopic, into a film, because the thing that you know about them is the writing, and it's, it's the least filmable thing that you can do. But you have did something rather extraordinary with this, particularly the first part of the film, which is about his war years, and you included a lot of poetry at the start, and you illustrated it with contemporary footage of the time, didn't you? Yes, I, I, I knew that that was a thing. Thing to do for two reasons. One is practical. I can't raise more than five million on a film and you can't do justice to the trench warfare. But even if you have unlimited budget, you still can't do justice to what the war was like when you see that footage. It's much more powerful. It's much more moving and it's much more horrific. And I said all along it's got to be war footage. We illustrate the war with war footage and the psychological damage it did to him afterwards. The war footage is astounding. Seeing that footage and think that these cameramen were lugging around a very heavy hand-cranked camera and they went into battle, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe, just as equally, it's astonishing even now after all these years to see the casualty lists after each battle. Oh, God, just terrifying. The structure of the film, Benediction, is, a, is very distinctive in a way because it comes out in essentially three parts. The first part, we talk about the war and particularly how, despite the fact he won a medal, he was very anti-the war. I mean, was he a pacifist or was he just did he just think that they were not conducting the war properly? Oh, no, I think he genuinely thought that they weren't conducting the war properly. Um, and he says that in his statement, you know, and he uh, cared for his man and they cared for him, who led from the front, always. They called him Mad Jack, he was so brave. I don't think he was a pacifist, but he did feel that the war had simply turned into battles of attrition that achieved nothing. And he wanted a corps marshal, actually, um, and it was Robbie Ross who got him sent to Craig Lockhart. He says to Robbie Ross, I was prepared to take the consequences. He said, we could be shot. Yeah. Said, well, I was prepared to take that risk. And uh, Robbie Ross says, but the re- the, those who love you would, weren't. But he wasn't a pacifist, I don't think. But I think he saw firsthand that you could not justify slaughter like that. The second part of the film is, I suppose, what they used to refer to as the Roaring Twenties. But it was a very English type of one. You, you hinted at it before, I think, Terence, when you mentioned the fact that if you were rich, if you knew famous people, then you had a fairly charmed life. I thought it was fascinating seeing that charmed life because it's not something you see very often on film. The, the, the 20s was a huge reaction against the war, naturally, not only in Europe, but in America too, particularly in and around Paris in mm. the 20s. You know, I mean, some of the greatest painters moved there um, between the war years or just before. That was demi-monde. I mean, that was, you're quite right, people 
who luxuriate in their luxury. They did. You can understand it having come through that war, but nonetheless, they were still very, very privileged. And really, it was in a way a very vapid kind of life because it was a kind of parody of real entertainment, if you see what I mean. And uh, there were so many of them. I mean, Edith Sitwell, I mean, reciting this incomprehensible poetry through a megaphone. I mean, God <laughs> almighty, what a way to spend your Easter. I did love that scene. I mean, because Edith Sitwell is one of those names that you know. I didn't realise that she'd done work with William Walton, who she clearly bullied into doing the music for her. Yes, uh, and, and the actress who played her did it wonderfully. She, we did the whole of Enfin Mir, which is interminable, which <laughs> middle out. But she got it straight away. Mm. And I mean, God knows what these poems are supposed to mean. <laughs> God knows. The person who typified that era in England, I think, must have been Ivan Novello. And Ivan Novello got a, quite a, uh, an easy run in the film Gosford Park, but you're a lot more cruel to him, I think, in this film. He comes across as an absolute... Rat bag. What he is, he was. I mean, the three years that Siegfried Sassoon was with him, Siegfried destroyed his own diaries for those three years. And the, and the, the official biography of Ivan Novello sort of says, oh, well, these little piccadillos, they were harmless. And you think, no, they weren't. He used people and then dropped them. You mm. don't do that. That's a kind of sexual venality. And ironically, uh, I know um, a casting director here, and when I told her about us making this film, mm. um, she said, my father ran a theatre and Ivan Novello came with a show and was an absolute bastard. The thing that I couldn't understand, I mean, I, I guess in the end you just have to accept it rather than understand it, is the fact that Sigrid Sassoon had been so sharp and intelligent, I mean, tr- troubled, obviously, but sharp and intelligent for the first act of the film, if you like, and then seemed to just give that up to go with somebody who was so obviously, you know, no good to him, but he still stayed with him, didn't he? Yes, I mean, like a lot of people, but I think it's particularly true of gay men, um, you fancy a person who doesn't fancy you, or a person fancies you, you don't fancy them. Mm. I, I think that's true in the heterosexual world, because being attracted to someone is so sort of deep, like an animal instinct. You know, mm. you just feel it, you don't really know it. And he did fall in love and go with the wrong people. Mm. Um, the only time he didn't was, of course, with Wilfred Owen, and they never disclosed their love. And in a way, he's kept... Wilfred remains pure, if you like, and so does Rupert Brooke. He didn't because he had to survive and he had to live in what was then the modern world, and I think he found that very hard. I think we're so used to hearing how repressed people were back then, particularly gay people, but in your film, everyone seems to be rather public with their private lives. And, you know, I think that if you're on that social level, then you can get away with anything. Yes, you can. I mean, there's a, there are two photographs which are very telling. One of Hester when she was young in this grey silk gown, and she looks fantastic. Mm. And there's a contemporary one of Stephen Tennant, and he looks like a woman, although he's dressed in bags and all that. He, and he strikes exactly the same pose, and he was openly effeminate. I mean, he mm. was outrageously effeminate but they got away with it because they were privileged. You mentioned Hester, and that's the third part of the film, which is many years later. He's, he's older now, and he's played by Peter Capaldi. And he married quite early. He married Hester, and they had a, a son. What was their relationship like? I mean, she clearly knew what she was getting into. I don't think she did, actually. Uh, I don't think she did, because when she says to Siegfried, uh, Stephen has told me all I need to know. That's very naive mm-hmm. uh, because she needed to know more. And I think she genuinely was attracted to him and wanted to marry him, just as he was attracted to her, perhaps not physically, but 
seeing her as a sad kind of comfort, you know, the love of a good woman will change your life. But I think they were naive going into it. But I do think they went into that marriage with the best of intentions, and it just didn't work out. I think that the way you get Gemma Jones to play her, she seems very sad at the end. And he does too. I couldn't work out whether he was searching for a meaning or whether he was trying to look back on his past and try and make sense of that. Yes, I think he's looking back upon his life and what he finds is he's unfulfilled. He's unredeemed, if you like. He's been looking for a kind of redemption all through his life, I think, and he'd never found it because you can't find it in other people or art or religion. You just can't. And I know because I've been there myself. I've never found it either. So I, I did feel that at the end of the film, he's looking back and thinking, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And apropos, his wife, when she's older, you know, you see a photograph of her when she was in Mull in her 50s and she looks utterly, utterly defeated. The main question, I guess, is why did you call it benediction? I mean, who gets blessed? Does anybody get blessed at the end of this? No, but, but, but it's calling down a blessing that never comes. And I've been doing the same, and I've never found it either. I mean, I, I wish whatever it was, whatever it is, it would come and knock on the door, but it never has. That was the wonderful Terence Davis, writer and director of Benediction, and the film comes out in early July. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.